You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So if you're, uh, if you're joining us here for the first time this week, it'd be good for you to know that we're a couple months in to a series in the Gospel According to Mark. And in the Gospel According to Mark, we are encountering one story after another where Mark is moving us with greater clarity toward this core question. And the core question is this, who is Jesus? And And right from the get-go, like right at Jesus's baptism, we see this uh, explicit progression of trying to answer this question of who is Jesus. And then right away we see that uh, Jesus is affirmed by the Father as, as uh, as, as the beloved Son, that he is the one in whom God is well pleased, and from there, we then see that Jesus is the one who, uh, in, secure in his identity, he's the one who withstands the, the Satan's testing in the wilderness. And from there, then, like Mark, he just continues to move us with this rapid like, progression. And he says that this Jesus, the one who the Father approves of, the one who withstands the testing, that he is the one worth leaving everything to follow. And more so, we see that Jesus is the one with authority, So right away, just in the first chapter alone, we see that Jesus is this dynamic figure, that the spirit of God is on him and in him, that it's it's manifesting itself with power. So he has the power to preach, unlike people had never seen before. He has the power to cast out demons and to heal. And this morning, we get to hear from Jesus. We get to hear Jesus kind of weigh in on this core question. And, And in so doing, we're gonna get an inside look into how Jesus sees himself. And so if you're not there yet, go ahead and uh, turn with me, either flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter two and and make your way down to to verse nine. So this is, if you're new to the scriptures, uh, just go ahead and open up in the middle and then just turn to the right. Mark is the, the second gospel there. So Mark chapter two, starting in verse nine. And this is what we read. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So I mentioned it just a moment ago, but this morning I I want us to talk about healing. Um, And I I don't want to talk about healing, but Mark is inviting us into this and I'm like trying to avoid it, but this is what it looks like when the scriptures do something in you. And um, so here we are. Um, So this morning I want us to talk about healing and I'm not just talking about physical healing. I'm talking about this holistic healing, emotional, spiritual, physical, the whole thing, because God sees us as these complete people. And as he's aiming to restore us into the image of Jesus, it's not just one little facet. It's the whole person that he desires to bring into restoration. And so I'm just going to pray. I'm going to ask that that this is uh, the spirit of God who's working in our hearts, who's leading us to Jesus. That's what the spirit does. He leads us to Jesus. Jesus leads us to the father. So I'm going to ask for that. Um, it's and just as a posture of receiving. Um, if this feels uncomfortable, don't do it. But if, if it doesn't, uh, if you would just uh, place your hands out in front of you, just saying, God, we are willing to receive um, from you, not from Kyle, but from you and your word. So Father, we, uh, w- once again, there is nothing, there is no word that can be said 
humanly speaking, that can turn one from death to life. That is you and you alone by the power of your word. And so God, we just ask that you this morning would meet with us. God, we, we do not take the scriptures lightly, but we, we place ourselves willfully and humbly beneath them. And so God, would you, would you check us? Would you check what we do in light of your scriptures? And would you, Spirit, would you convict us of sin and righteousness alike, knowing that we have assurance in you, Lord Jesus. And so it's to you that we turn our attention and we ask that you would stir our affections for you. Would you loose the grips of guilt? Would you loose the grips of shame? Would you loose the grips that says, I am too far gone? And would you meet us with grace this morning through the power of your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus emerges onto the public scene and he does so with a message in hand. The message that Jesus brings, it comes back in Mark chapter one and verse 15. And it says this, it says that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand and, and then repent and believe the gospel. So the time is fulfilled. It's, it's come to a head. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is now here. And who's it here in? It's, near, it's here in Jesus. So then the response that Jesus asks for is repent. Quite a churchy word. He's saying, do an about face, turn and trust. This is the message that Jesus comes when he, he comes with, when he enters in on the public scene. And what we've seen these past two months is that Jesus isn't just interested in preaching. He isn't just interested in talking about this stuff. He wants to get it in and through him. So he embodies this. He doesn't say it and then like retreat to afar and never come back in front of people. No, he's interested in having those who hear his voice draw near to him to experience, to actually see the kingdom of God come, new through, come near through healing. In other words, the kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near. So Jesus taught and he brought the kingdom of God. And, and it looks like wherever the kingdom goes, that is wherever Jesus goes, the rule of God goes there also. And I encountered this illustration this, this last week that was like, it, it helped this whole scene just jump off the page for me. It, so imagine, and this won't be hard, trust me. Imagine a wintry tundra, Yeah. Now imagine that the whole world is in this wintry tundra. Also not too hard to imagine for us considering these past few months. Everything is just, it's rigid, it's, it's stiff, it's seemingly lifeless, it's, it's dormant. And, and then Jesus comes. And it's like everywhere that Jesus steps, it's as though his foot moves and it meets the soil. And it's like all of that cold, rigid stuff, it just pushes back and a thaw goes in. And then all of the stuff, like all of the life that is teeming within that soil, it begins to be let loose. And all of the potential that's packed in there, it just begins to emerge. And it's like one step after another like this life begins to spring forth. This is what it's like when the kingdom of God comes near. It's like life coming out of this wintry wasteland. And so Mark, he, he wants us to get this picture that this is happening everywhere. And so at the end of our teaching text from this past week in, in Mark 1 39, he says this, he says, Jesus, this is he, went throughout all of Galilee. This is a whole region up by the Sea of Galilee in the northern parts of Israel. 
So he went throughout all of Galilee and he's preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the dynamic ministry of Jesus. This is what happens when he shows up. And and what we see is that preaching is at the core of Jesus's ministry. It's right in the center. It, like all of his stuff flows from that. And Mark reminds us of so much like that this is true even today. So turn with me now to the beginning of our teaching text, Mark chapter two, verse one, and this is what we read. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, uh, stop right there. So uh, Jesus had been going throughout all of the Galilee. He'd been going all throughout. And it, it, we, we see that um, his fame had grown to the point that he could no longer enter a town openly. So the, the crowds would just throng around him. They would mob him and he could hardly move. But, but what we see here from Mark is that some time has died down. And now he's able to enter back into Capernaum, which is going to be his home base for his ministry. And so we see this. We see when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And then check this out. And he was preaching the word to them. This preaching is central. But have you ever wondered, what was Jesus saying? What did he, go, what did he actually go around saying? And Mark Mark can be kind of frustrating sometimes because even in the first chapter, we'll see that Jesus comes on the scene and he goes to the synagogue in Capernaum and we see he's teaching and he's teaching with authority and they've never seen anybody teach like this before, but Mark never tells us what Jesus taught. And part of the discipline of staying with Mark is to like stay in Mark. Um, But we're gonna do a little cheating this morning and we're gonna go over to another author in the gospel genre, uh, to the gospel according to Luke. And so turn to the right just a little bit. And you'll find your way to Luke chapter four. Because if you've ever wondered what it was that Jesus was saying, we actually get a picture of that. So uh, Luke chapter four, starting in verse 18. This is Jesus's first sermon according to Luke. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus starts off quite strong, quoting the Bible. Uh, It's a good place to start a sermon. Uh, But lest we think that this was all that Jesus did, this would be the common practice in a synagogue. There would be a reading of the scripture and then check out what would go down next. And he, this is Jesus, he rolled up the scroll and then he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, this is interesting. Maybe we try it sometime. In this context, the rabbi or the teacher who was there, everyone would be standing for the reading of God's word out of reverence. Uh, and then the teacher would sit down and everybody else would remain standing. How do we like that? Should we try it sometime? No? All right. Just maybe, maybe. So this is, this is the scene. Jesus is now seated. And then we read this, we see, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him like epic pause. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. Like short sermon. You're like, Kyle, learn something from Jesus here about the short sermon. Short sermon, great sermon. See, for Jesus, the kingdom of God was a reality to live into. For him, it was something that he himself was embodying. It's not just a thing to talk about. And a little later on, Jesus's cousin, John the baptizer, 
He's gonna be in prison for calling out one of these like uh, imposter kings on his marital acts, like illicit marital acts. And so John from prison has his disciples attending to him. And then he sends his disciples out to Jesus to check in with him because like uh, probably because if your cousin is acting like the Messiah and you have participated in his baptism, like moving him into this renewal movement, you see the heavens torn open, you're probably thinking that the whole liberty of the captives thing applies to you. So there you sit in Jesus, like, and you're like, okay, I'm just waiting. What's going on? But John sends his disciples out and they say, okay, Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And then right there in, in Luke um, chapter seven, so turn, just turn the page over like two times. This is, this is what Jesus says to their question of, are, are you the one or should we wait for another? He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Where's the liberty to the captives? So is Jesus the one bringing the kingdom of God? Yes, absolutely Jesus is the one bringing the kingdom of God. However, it's not on John's terms here, which I think we can feel that tension sometimes. We, we have a vision for Jesus of how his kingdom should come and his will should be done in our lives. But Jesus is inviting John to receive from him. And Jesus essentially says, look what I'm doing. Because for Jesus, preaching was never divorced from action. They were always part and parcel. And when Jesus comes, the kingdom of God, and more specifically, the power of God breaks in with authority. It, it looks like this. It looks like a leper breaking all the rules to come to Jesus so that he might be cleansed. It, it, it looks like darkness and the powers of darkness retreating in Jesus's presence. It looks like the ill being made well. And when we come back to our teaching text, Mark, he's gonna take the power of Jesus and he's gonna press it a little bit further, further than anyone is really comfortable with. Jesus is gonna claim to have the authority to forgive sins. And even today, this gets people in a bit of a tiff because this is too far. Here's the scene. Jesus is preaching in the power of God that the kingdom of God has come near. And now he's back. He's back in Capernaum. And he's probably in Peter's home, Simon Peter, where his mother-in-law was raised up and made well. He's probably there. And word gets out that this one who has authority is back. And it, the one who could cast out demons, the one who could make the ill well. And so people start packing into this place. And homes in this day, they would have, they would have looked kind of like this. Um, homes in this day, they would be this um, like, little like complex where uh, you would, for, for Simon Peter, for example, like his mother-in-law was there with him for a good reason because the family would come and they would be with you. So right now my in-laws are living with us and we have a Jack and Jill bathroom and I'm just thinking, I feel like the struggle is real. Like uh, just one, like, but it's, it's multiple people. So they would all share this common space and then there would be these courtyards. And so there'd be these narrow alleys where people would traverse this little town of Capernaum. So just think of like downtown squished even closer together and you're not there yet. Get a little bit tighter. So it would make complete sense why it didn't take long for the news to spread about Jesus being back. And it would also make sense why it was so crowded. And yet amidst the crowd in this scene here are these people clamoring to get to Jesus. It's these four friends and then their other friend. 
these four men and their friend, and they're, they're carrying their friend on a mat. And the reason they're carrying their friend on a mat is because he can't walk because he's a paralytic. And so they carry him, and, and here's, here's how Mark describes it. So go with me back to Mark chapter two. If you're still in Luke, flip back to the left. Mark chapter two, starting in verse three. This is what we read. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So just imagine this scene a little bit further, if you will. And if, and if you can, to the best of your ability, try, because you have these beautiful minds. You have these minds with like these vibrant imaginations. So let's just activate these things right now. Imagine that you are the paralytic. And imagine now that you have, you have heard this news of this Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has the power to heal. And perhaps the crowds were such that previously you couldn't make your way, but now, now you hear the, like the, the buzz. You hear like the hum of all the people getting there and then you hear the silence because they're listening attentively to this Jesus of Nazareth preach. And then your, your four friends, they come together. Your buddies are like, you know what? Jesus is here. We gotta get to him. We gotta get him. So, so, so you start making your way there and they get you, they carry you on your mat and they bring you, but they can't maneuver the crowd and so then they kind of retreat back into one of the alleys and they're like spitballing, what are we gonna do? Um, and this is like 21st century reimagining of what they're saying. So I don't think anybody said spitballing back in the day. Um, and then a moment goes by and then one of the guys goes, I've got an idea. Hear me out. We all have a friend. I think it's me. I think I'm this friend that says, hear me out. Now you qualify it because you know it's kind of a bad idea. Because I got an idea. Hear me out. The doors are crowded. Duh, dude. Why not make another door? Why not make a skylight? Let's do it. I mean, Mark, Mark's frustrating sometimes because, and we should be used to this now. He doesn't give us these details, so we're invited to use our imaginations. What are they saying? What's it like? Now, that's not like infallible or anything like that, but this is the beautiful part of the scriptures and joining Mark in the, in the story of the gospel. But, but check this out. He does, he does say this. Look at this line here. They removed the roof above him the audacity of these men. Like if, if there was a rigid translation for this, it would go something like, they unroofed the roof. I love that. That's my, I'm partial to that. They unroofed the roof. So clearly it's not impossible to get to Jesus if you have a zeal for Jesus's presence. And certainly this would have made a scene, but it's rather comedic. I mean, think about the progression of this little scene here. All of a sudden, these people are listening intently. There's a room full of people and then a little pinhole of light starts to come through. And now you, you hear the hustle and the bustle and then all of a sudden you see like it's pulled back and you see one, two, three, four heads poking through. Jesus, there he is. And then the then paralytic lowered down. I, I don't know, do they like drop him? Cause they're like, dude, you're paralyzed. Sorry, and just like, boom. Or I don't know, like what's the, what ha we, But these guys literally make a way for their friend to get to Jesus. And now this, this could be like a whole other teaching series, which we're not gonna do yet. But um, for the sake of time, two observations about, about what this looks like for these friends to literally make a way for their friend to get to Jesus. Um, so first, it's a question. What's your reflex in crisis? See, for these guys, it was vandalism in the name of Jesus. Um, 
partially kidding, but it's also true. Um, No, we would describe it this way. It was a zeal for his presence. They they had like this presence reflex. There's crisis. Well, what do we got to do? Jesus of Nazareth is there. Okay, we need to get to the presence of Jesus. They have a, in crisis, they have a presence reflex. So what's yours? Is it a complaining reflex? Something challenging happens at work, so you call up your girlfriend or you call up your buddy and you just start letting loose. Or you say something that a Christian would say, can I just, can I just vent to you for a moment? Because that's what I say to my wife. So, so do you have a complaining reflex? Or perhaps yours is a little bit different. Perhaps you have a cynicism reflex. You have this critical spirit in you and, and so something challenging or, or there's like a crisis that comes and so then you say, I knew that none of this would work out. I knew it. I knew it, would, it never works out the way it's supposed to work out. I can't really trust anybody, can I? So in crisis, what's your reflex? That's our first observation. Second little observation is, I guess, another question and then a response to it. So this is my way of getting three observations into two. Uh, do you think this was distracting? Do, do you? I, Mark doesn't say. But if we were unroofing the roof, if somebody were unroofing the roof on Central Campus, would we notice? Probably. We probably would notice this. See, when Jess and I were first married, we had this tiny little apartment. And uh, it was an old building, old brick building. And there was just one person above us. And, and uh, the apartment above us was vacant for a while. And now I'm not, I don't know a lot about like, I'm like the fourth person you call when you need somebody mechanically inclined. Like just, there you go. I'll lift things up for you, but that's about it. Um, so in this place, uh, presumably when, when those places sit empty, the pipes can rust. So we would, when they would flush or use their kitchen or use their bath or anything, we would hear the water flowing. And well, that was pretty normal. But then some, some tenants moved back in above us and we started to hear the water flowing and it was a bit too loud. And then soon enough, uh, we started to hear. And the water is dripping through the ceiling. And then soon enough, it's not just. It's like a stream of water. So when you use the restroom, you hold a bucket above your head like that. So. So was this distracting? If a little drip of water will disrupt you and wake you from sleep, do you think unroofing the roof would do that? Here's what, here's what I'm getting at. I wonder if anybody was in the room thinking, don't these guys know that I'm sitting trying to listen to Jesus? How disrespectful. Okay, I, I get it, I get it. They have a, a zeal for his presence. But really that 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 is, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna allow that here? That's distracting me. And now you might notice my tone is a bit critical of this. This is, this is my point. Our quiet judgment, as we're sitting listening to Jesus, our quiet judgment stands opposed to the person of Jesus. If you don't believe me, go to verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice the declaration that Jesus makes right here. At this, it's no, you're healed. It's not, I will be clean. It's, it's son, your sins are forgiven. And some people try to make the case that when Jesus announces forgiveness, he's like, oh, dude, I, like, I know you had to get through the roof. You punched a hole in it. You're good. Like, I'm sorry. That's silly. 
That's not what's happening here. And we know this because you just read the next verse. Just go to verse six and it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. If Jesus were just forgiving them for punching a hole in the roof, it wouldn't be blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this last question right here, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the pressing question. This is how Mark presses Jesus's identity even further in front of us. Because up until this point, there's really no conflict between Jesus's healing of the sick and the casting out of the demons in their presence. They're, they're, like there's no real conflict between Jesus and the religious elite. But he just did the thing that no one but the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were commissioned to do, and that is to dispense God's forgiveness. But Jesus just, he just did it. And then check this out in verse eight, to compound the moment. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So it's interesting as you come into Jesus's presence and you try to like think these ill thoughts of him, it does not go well. <laughs> but this is this question at the end, why do you question these things in your heart? If Jesus wasn't asking, if it was not Jesus asking this question, I think this would be a silly question. But because it is Jesus, there's some traction here. But but let's hold tight because the scribes, are their impulse is right. Think of the scribes as like the custodians of the law. They have a reverence for the word of God. They have a love for the Hebrew tradition, for the story of the people. And the movement of Jesus, it's begun to take this shape of like messiahship. Could this Jesus be the one who would deliver us all? There's this little twinge of messianic hope with Jesus. And so, my goodness, like here, these custodians of the law, they hear Jesus. And so there's this tension for them. But the Messiah in their minds, he could heal. There was shelf space for that. The, the Messiah would be the one to crush the source of sin. There was shelf space for that. But right here, Jesus went a little too far because it's God's prerogative alone to forgive sins. It's, it's the offended party that forgives. To, to do otherwise is blasphemy. But then Jesus draws out all of that internal logic, all of their reverence of the law, all of their custodial work of the law. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? And their impulse is correct. It is good and it is right and it is correct for them to ask these questions. But it's also good and right and correct for Jesus to push back because in pushing back, he's pushing the claim of his identity even further. Because let's recall, back at Jesus's baptism, Jesus now never moves from a place of trying to earn his identity before the Father. Jesus's whole ministry extends from a place of belovedness. So Jesus, he's in this moment, not announcing forgiveness because he needs to like drum up the affections of the people in the room. No, he's announcing forgiveness because he knows who he is, that he's God's beloved son. And just, just look how he presses even further. Go back with me to verse nine. Jesus says this, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So I wanted this sermon to be like 45 minutes longer, but I was encouraged for that not to be the case. Son of Man, oh my gosh. Like, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus is looking back to Daniel 7. Jesus is saying that he is the truly exalted human one. And if you walked, if, is anybody here in, into Star Wars? Maybe one or two people. Um, I always feel like the oddball out because I'm not. Uh, I know, I know, take it easy. But if you were to go to a Star Wars convention and you said to somebody, Luke, I am your father. Would you have to tell them who you are? Would you have to tell them who they think you are? No. When Jesus says, when he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, they're like, what? Jesus has just put himself in the place of the son of man? This, this statement and coupled with the forgiveness of sins, this is what escalates the whole scene. And later on in the gospel, according to Mark, trust me, we will have a whole sermon on the Son of Man. So just, ooh, let's get ready for it. Um, but it makes sense why the religious leaders are annoyed in light of this. It, it makes total sense. But when I think about this passage for us, and I think about this passage in our context with our colleagues and our neighbors, I don't think we're annoyed for the same reason that the scribes are annoyed. I think we're annoyed for something a little bit different. I think we're annoyed because we think that this whole talk about sin is irrelevant. Four times explicit mention of sin comes up and we're like, hold, hold on, Jesus. There's a man lying physically broken at your feet who's and you've demonstrated you have the power to heal. What's all this fuss about sin? Are you kidding me? Like make him well. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about this like triangulation of frustration around human brokenness, the like apparent presence or rather the absence of God and then sin. There are too many to count because this is a real tension for us. And for many, this word sin is a roadblock in a journey of following God. It stands in the way, some will say, well, sin stands in the way of winsome conversations about Jesus, but you can't talk about Jesus unless you talk about sin. Because he just said that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So we necessarily have to go here. But what happens inside and outside of the church because of this like discomfort is we just punt the word sin. But David Brooks, who teaches at Yale and he writes in the New York Times, he makes an opposite claim. And in a lecture that he gave on ramps and roadblocks uh, to the Christian faith, he had this to say. This is a rather lengthy quote. So tune in for this. There's some gold to be had here. David Brooks says this, he says, the language of good and evil has become absent in the secular world. The word sin is now mostly used in reference to desserts. Think sinfully delicious. But if you want to talk about the deepest affairs of the heart, only words like sin, soul, redemption really work. And if you don't have those words, you're losing the tools. People don't change because they decide to be better. If that happened, the New Year's resolutions would work. Amen. Amen. People decide to change because they elevate their loves. And as St. Augustine said, you become what you love. 
But if you can't talk about the struggle of sin, if you can't talk about why some loves are higher than other loves and like ordered versus disordered loves, then you do not have the moral vocabulary, the mental toolkit to think about how to be. In other words, sin and the language around sin is like a key that opens up with like this door to clarity on who we really are. Because the real evil, the real evil is deep within and failure to name evil is, it's like setting out to pull weeds in a vast untamed garden with toenail clippers. And so you go out there and you're like, your intentions may be good, but you go out there and you start working And then you realize that all you're doing is cutting back some foliage, if you can even call it that. And meanwhile, the like taproot that is set deep is altogether unaffected and it's intact. It has, nothing is happening to it. But we're out there busy trying to like push back the powers of sin and darkness with toenail clippers. See, when we can name sin, and this is what I mean by sin, sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitude, or action. What that means is that sin is totally pervasive. It's in our bones. There's this guy, Pete Scazzaro, he says something like, yeah, I may have Jesus in my heart, but I've got grandpa in my bones. It's because sin is not just personal, it's intergenerational. Sin is pervasive. But when we can name sin, it's like throwing out the nail clippers and grabbing a pickaxe. And then we can get out there and we can start to get beneath the hardened soil of our hearts to get to the root. But you know what? That's not the end. That's not the end because this is where so many communities and so many of us in this room have stopped. So we name our sin and then we get in there and we pick and we pick and we pick, but we never stop to pull. We never stop to ask God to fill us with his strength, with his power, with his grace, to pull it out, to trust him, to do the work of pulling that out. So all we feel at the end of the day is exposed. We feel guilty. We feel shamed because we've named our sin, but it's still there because we've not actually done the, root, the, the work with God and participating with him and saying, we're putting this to death. And so what happens then is life goes on and we feel this cocktail of like gladness and guilt um, and then the soil settles and then it hardens again and then that same pesky weed shows up and you're like what in the world I threw away the toe clippers like, like I, I got what's going on see the language of sin is only the moral toolkit to get at the roots forgiveness is the reality that pulls them out Forgiveness is what we need. And I, and I love like this one pastor, he says it this way, that the main problem humanity has is not their suffering, it's their sin. And I can understand how this feels a bit insensitive, especially in 2020. Uh, but when Jesus looks at this paralyzed man, his response is not, oh, look how you've suffered. His response is, son, your sins are forgiven. Because our greatest need is not the alleviation or the cessation of suffering, which is what Buddhism or, or something like that would say. But no, our greatest need is reconciliation with the God of the cosmos. It is the uprooting. It is the pulling out of the thing that has left us estranged from our heavenly father. And that is sin. And none of our efforts, not even our best ones will do that work. Because it's Christ alone who does that work by his grace alone, 
by that, that that work is accomplished. And here's the thing about sin. And I mentioned it a moment ago, but it is not a personal and private thing. This is simply not what sin does. It is deeply relational. Anybody who's like tasted the pangs of divorce, whether personally, familially, or across your friendships, you know, like you know that it is, it like breaks your heart and that when your heart is broken, God's heart is broken. It is this thing that deeply burdens God's heart for humanity. Just think about it this way, this, this severing. If Jess and I threw a party and we invited you, and it was a rough week, um, and so you, you, you came to the party, you're looking to be like, oh, I just want to be with some friends, this is good. But then um, you get drunk, and then you yell at Griffin, who's one years old. And then you get in a fist fight in our living room with one of our other guests, and you punch a hole in our wall. How do you think that party's going now? Not too well. No. See, but you didn't punch me in the face. Granted, this has never happened, by the way. <laughs> but, but you never punched me in the face. But like, the peace of the party, the joy of that party is right. When the scriptures talk about this, they talk about God as this generous host who has created the cosmos. He's thrown this party and he starts out, it's beautiful. And it's like he set the table and he wants to see like all of creation flourish. And so he sets the people who bear his image to both male and female, take care of and steward and bring out all of the raw potential. And it's like there's a tussle in his cosmic living room and we like punch someone else in the face. Like, so, so if, do you think that like if you who threw the punches in my living room and yelled at my son, do, do you think there would be relational tension between us? No? Yes, there would. You cannot yell at my son and then punch one of my guests in the face. That's a no-go at our house. Homie, don't play that. No, like, so, so just now, like, like level that up on a cosmic scale. This, this is the deep offense of sin. This is why sin, sin is, is against God and God alone. That's why the scribe's impulse is correct, that only God can forgive sins. And so go with me back to Mark 2. With all of this information in your mind's eye, let's just, let's just take a fresh look at this. See, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, I'm in verse nine, or to say, rise Take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. See, when Jesus asks this question at the end here, he's basically telling them that it's easier to say to someone that your sins are forgiven. I could say to all of you, your sins are forgiven, but how would you know? Apart from like some miraculous thing where God's manifest presence shows up and like announces that in, in partnership with my words, you wouldn't really know. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus says this, go with me to verse 11. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what did he do? He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus chose the visibly harder thing and all were amazed. Do you know what that word in the Greek all means? 
all. It means all of them were amazed. It means that the scribes who were har- like harboring blasphemy in their hearts and criticism towards Jesus, that in, as his response for this man to get up, they're then amazed. And they offer up worship to God. They, they glorify God. So, so if we can, as, as we start to make our way towards the end here, like, let's notice the contours of this scene once more. Because for Mark, when he talks about miracles, they, they, they always function as like these little sermonettes. Is Jesus's miracles are like these moments where we're invited to, to see in a new way what's going on. Because anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but these little miracles are like an invitation to imagine what that might have felt like. And so when Mark tells this story, he's talking about sin and forgiveness. And sin looks like being paralyzed. It looks like being immobile. It looks like being stuck where you're so near to Jesus, but your legs, they don't work like your legs are supposed to. And so you want to get near to Jesus, but you simply cannot get near to him. Sin looks like being frozen in your paralysis with maybe a desire to get there, but not the means to do so. But then this happens, but Jesus looks. He looks at this man and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. That is what forgiveness feels like. Forgiveness looks like feeling frozen in your sin and then being invited to rise in new life. This is what it looks like. Forgiveness looks like being loosed from the shackles of your paralysis. It looks like kneeling in confession and then standing in forgiveness. Forgiveness sounds like amazement and it sounds like glory to God. This is what forgiveness is like. And we see that this forgiveness is connected to faith. So go with me back to verse five. We see this. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So whose faith did he see? Did he see the the friend's faith? Yes. Did he he see the paralytic's faith? Well, yeah. So I I don't know what to do with this theologically. (laughs) I suppose I'm agnostic on this. I just don't know theologically what's happening here. But like at bare minimum, we can say this, Jesus saw them. Like he saw them with his eyes and he called it faith. He saw them unroofing the roof and he called that faith. In this moment, we actually encounter for the first time in the gospels because Mark, although it's the second gospel, it is the first one written. We encounter for the first time faith. It's the first time this word appears in the gospels and faith is a fuzzy bible Christian word. So uh, I looked for some help on this one. James Edwards He says this, he says, faith is first and foremost, not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust. It's active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. See, faith is not just about what we know. I bet that most of us could pass a theological exam in here, but the active trust in our hearts, it's like on empty or it's non-existent, or it's like brittle and it's in this moment of paralysis. So it's faith, this active trust, it's about activating that information. It's about entering into this transformed reality. And just imagine these four friends 
They know that the rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, is there, that he's in Capernaum. So for them, the logical conclusion, the zeal that they have for his presence is to get their friend, to get him on his map, and to get them to Jesus. That's their inclination. They have a presence reflex. And so they unroof the roof. This is active trust because active trust, it's not afraid to make a scene. Active trust is willing to enter into that awkward space. So these guys, they, they look at the physical, they look at the social, they look at the customary barriers and they say, no, we're getting to Jesus. We are getting to him. And we see this all over the gospels. We see it in a leper last week who makes his, risks everything to get to Jesus. We see a woman in Mark 5 who has this unceasing flow of blood who is marked as unclean. She risks her life to get to Jesus. And she has this superstitious little hope that she might just reach out reach out and touch the hem of his garment. That if she just does that, then she can be healed. Guess what Jesus says to that woman? Your faith made you well. Every time we encounter like this faith rising up, this active trust in the gospels, we see it's like people are just throwing with reckless abandon the like customary things to the side because they must get to Jesus. I, I have like this thing welling up in my heart that I don't have words. Like I, I can't tell you how deeply I want this for us, but I can't make it happen. Like I'm in, I am so stinking in. But I, my inness, that's even a thing you can say, cannot be yours. I will point you to Jesus the best that I know how. I will pursue his presence. I'll ask for, for the Father to fill me with the knowledge of his will so that like with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that I might keep in step with him so that I might walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. I will do that and I'll do that with you and for you and I will come alongside you the best that I can but I cannot do it for you. It's something that has to rise up within you that says, I'm willing to do it. I will, get, I will get to him. It's this thing of active trust. And the beauty is, the beauty is, is that we can't do it. So Jesus has done it. Because we can't do it, Jesus has done it because Jesus is the truly sufficient one. Jesus has suffered. Jesus has suffered even to the point of death. He has entered in so that we may enter in. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.